0: I guess there was nowhere to go but up. <laughs> he says before the 2024 election cycle starts. Uh, don't get me started. But the, uh, you know, things are, are, are really good. We've, we've been on the road with this movie and, uh, you know, finished up Zappa and Showbiz Kids. I mean, when I spoke to you last, I, that was a crazy year for me. So I had Zappa, Showbiz Kids, and Bill and & Ted 3 all came out. Yeah, in the thick of COVID, which was bananas but all did, they all did really well. So it was a strange kind of bittersweet thing. Cause you felt almost guilty for succeeding in such a horrendous period of time. Um, but if it's any consolation, it was horrendous for me to, <laughs> <laughs> we were all we were all stuck at home, and it was a terrible time, and worried about whether or not we were going to die.
1: Alex, I've been in therapy, and I'm finally passing the point in my life where I can derive pleasure from other people's suffering. So I'm sorry. Right. Oh, good that. for you.
0: Well, you have a good. I'm going to have to get that therapist number then. Um, the uh, uh, so it's been good. We've been very busy. We we uh, you know we made this film. We've been on the road with it, and uh, we've been showing it in the- theaters around the country and and around the world. I just came back from the UK. Um, And we've been having these amazing sold out shows all over the place. So I I couldn't be more grateful that the film is connecting with people. And uh, we are about to come out, you know, on digital. So many more people will be able to, to see it. So I can't complain. Things are good. Things are good.
1: For a project like this, is this something that was already, I guess, gestating prior to the pandemic?
0: Um, yes and no. I mean, I've been looking to make another tech doc that examines where we are now. Uh, this is my fourth feature doc on technology, and I've made some shorts around um, sort of the growth of online communities and, and where they you know, crash into politics and other other issues. But with this one, Gail Ann Hurd, the producer, literally cold called me, um, having seen my other tech docs and asked me if I was interested in collaborating with her on a film about youtube that she had some access and she assumed i would have access and and i did I, I know a lot of people in that space so we we conspired to work on it together it felt like the right time to look at google which is really what you end up doing when you look at youtube because google really owns and runs youtube uh and it felt like the right time to step in on on what is now and arguably the largest online community on the planet by bio waves
1: what were your youtube connections previously
0: uh, well, I, you know, I came up on in the internet early in the mid 80s, uh, pretty vigorously and made a lot of connections in that space around that time. And, and uh, with different people, some of whom came to be known as the cypherpunks and other people who were, you know, this is pre web. So this was dealing with the BBS and Usenet era and people who were interested in all kinds of things, including radical politics and uh, art and philosophy, things like that, um, which I mean, you and I spoke about my Deep Web film about the Silk Road. And, and that was, was a very natural extension of, of this community, even, you know, taking uh, with the crime element aside though there was crime in the BBS era it was much smaller. So uh, so this has been a great interest of mine for a long time. And I, as, as I have made films in this space, including the film about the rise and fall of Napster, I made a lot of connections. And just like Hollywood, the tech community is very small. Um in terms of who's actually doing anything so being knowing Sean fanning and Sean Parker and the and the VC angel investors who funded Napster and Google and Yahoo and Facebook and all the rest of it I mean these are all people I know uh so it, it's not difficult for me to 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 make phone calls and and get direct connections. What can be more difficult is determining who I really want to talk to like who has a story to tell, which is you know access is meaningless if there's no reason to stick someone in the film other than they're famous. So that became kind of the challenge. is like, who do I really want to talk to in this space? And there wasn't a lot of people I really wanted on camera. Most of them I was just talking to you for research.
1: You cast a pretty wide net when you're starting out. Regardless, is is there are there a lot of interviews that you do that ultimately don't make it into the film?
0: There's interviews that I, there's not filmed interviews because I don't tend to stick a camera in someone's face unless I unless I really believe they're going to be on uh, in the film. And I think with all the docs I've done, I very rarely shot anyone who didn't make it into the film. Maybe three times out of eight or nine movies. So. Uh, I'm pretty uh, intense with pre-production and planning, and I tend to have a pretty rock-solid idea of what I want, who I want the cast of characters to be. And it would kind of be like hiring an actor for a film, uh, a narrative, and then, and then booting them out, and booting that entire character out of the film. I, I write these docs very much like an, a, a narrative. It's not a script, but it's, it's structurally mapped out like a narrative, and by the time I get to my cast, I, I tend to believe they're gonna, they, they need to be there and very rarely has that not been the case. So we do a lot of interviews in the research stage, uh, some of whom are people we circle back to get on camera later, which happened to us here, uh, I think, with Carrie Goldberg. I was doing audio interviews with her for information uh, and then
1: went back to shoot her afterwards. What was the plot of the film before you actually really started sitting down and doing all this in earnest?
0: I think it was, the idea was to to tell the story of the genesis and rise of the YouTube platform in order to arrive at the present day uh, and have a direct emotional experience by way of the characters with that platform's impact on society. Beyond that, I didn't exactly know where I was going to go because it was going to be dependent upon what that cast of characters divulged and what we learned in our research as we went. And docs are a strange beast. They kind of erupt. And they go in, in several directions at the same time. mind do anyway. Maybe other people aren't like this. But I'm going on three tracks at once normally, which is research. Um, my research team is delving into the subject and pulling all the media down that they can. And I'm part of that process. I'm uh, pulling down enormous amounts of material and researching. Uh, editorial, uh, my editor will begin to uh, build timelines based on what's going on in this world. And we'll be in the room together discussing stuff and production where you're going out in the field and, and filming people. And while you're doing those three things, or because it's me, while I'm doing all three of those things at once, uh, a story begins to emerge that usually overtakes whatever you thought your story was. So uh, that happened here. And then you that takes you down different different avenues.
1: What, if any, was that, that big surprise that developed
0: um, there were several. Um, I think that that the the sheer scale of YouTube really uh, became a, a pivotal uh, aspect of the story. Um, just dealing with something that is not a social media platform is not um, you know a record of all of human activity that's been recorded. It's not your movies and your music and your and your influencer characters. Uh, it's not DIY. It's not cat videos. It's literally. All of that, right? It is it is by far the largest media platform on the planet, bigger than all of those things I just mentioned. It's bigger than any social media platform. It's bigger than any media company. It's bigger than most of the conglomerates that own the media companies, when you think of them, Viacom or Time Warner or whatever, or whatever Warner is today, because it'll probably change again by tomorrow. Warner um, Discovery, I guess, right? So its scale started to really sink in. Uh, and the fact that it isn't essentially a separate company from Google, other than, in my opinion, in very superficial ways. It is really Google's media front end. Uh, so given that Google is the largest tech company on the planet, in terms of how many users it engages with, you could say that Apple has like a bigger market cap. But Google uh, Google's uh, product engages with far more people than Apple's does, like far more, billions more. So... Uh, you're dealing with a monopoly that's the largest tech company on the planet that has a media front end that's bigger than any other media front end on the planet. And I was like, okay, well, that's obviously my story. And what is that story? And so as we dug into it through human beings, through characters, through Caleb Kane and and Natalie Wynn ContraPoints and Carrie Goldberg and Brianna Wu, what began to emerge was the the... The impact that this company is having on the planet, you know, a lot of good stuff, a lot of great stuff, even I would say, but that the harms were really intense and largely not being dealt with. Um, and so I think that the, in practical terms, uh, you know, the study that showed that more of the uh, participants in the January 6th insurrection had been radicalized on YouTube than any other social media platforms, a, a Bellicat, Bellingcat study that's really, really thorough. That really had, we were really digging much more into, into J6 insurrection and big tech's role in that, and specifically YouTube's role in that. But also this idea began to emerge. I'd been bumping, I'd been suspicious and kind of irritated by the word algorithm being used so much. And sometimes when you're irritated by something, it means there's, there's a, there's more to it that I need to investigate because obviously just being irritated isn't doing me any, or anyone else any favors. It's not
1: very productive, sure.
0: Exactly. So, um, I began to look at 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 what it was about that term that was that was rubbing me the wrong way. I would see other documentaries or algorithm, the algorithm, the algorithm's coming for you. Take your kids off of their iPads because the algorithm is there. And what I've discovered making the film is that this, these issues are not, in my opinion, algorithmic. They they are to the degree that there are algorithms at play. There was a time when the YouTube recommender algorithm was much more nefarious than it is now. It's pretty it's gotten pretty tamed. But these are not, in my opinion, algorithm issues. They are they are business model and incentive issues. They're very human. And so I began to dig into that story. I realized that the use of the term algorithm is in a way a ruse by big tech to get the public to just stop looking at it, to just go elsewhere, because it's an overwhelming, confusing, you know, at the end of the day, kind of fatalistic term that if you're a citizen at home, you're like, well, there's nothing we can do. Why not? Because it's the algorithm, right? As opposed to, there's a handful of people who have incentives to pump this content through and hook you with it so that they can monetize it for ad dollars. And that's really what's going on.
1: I would frame it as the algorithm, you know, having potentially been an issue. Like, certainly I've had this experience, and I think a lot of other people have too, where I've been watching something and, you know, I, during the pandemic I started falling asleep to YouTube, which I know is not a great idea. And then you wake up and all of a sudden there's like a Jordan.
0: <laughs> and you're a neo-Nazi. How did that happen? <laughs>
1: I am slightly more sympathetic to like how like young and yeah. impressionable people get radicalized but but I think I think maybe what you're getting at is the algorithm itself is driven by these capitalistic forces. Exactly.
0: Exactly. The the mechanics are almost irrelevant. The the machinery that is pumping this stuff at you is there's nothing you can there's nothing you can do about that, right? You can go to youtube or to whoever and say you got to fix your algorithm and they'll be like okay we'll tweak the algorithm when that's not the issue the issue is that the people who have who have built these systems have built them with certain incentives that have nothing to do with technology whatsoever they're the same incentives that william randolph hearst and and pulitzer were using back in the yellow journalism days when they were you know pumping knowingly inaccurate, you know, current event content at people to raise money because they knew for their product, or they knew that that kind of content made the most money. And that is the same set of incentives that's at work today. And that's not a technology issue. That is a business and profit motive issue.
1: I suspect that you're similar to me from the standpoint of being like, I I would call myself a techno pragmatist. Like I... I know a lot of people, you know, I work in tech. I, I work for TechCrunch. I know a lot of people who are techno utopians, And I I write about robotics a lot. I write about automation and all these stories around automation taking taking jobs. What I always say, ultimately, is that I think uh, something that people don't take into account is the capitalist incentive. Because at the end of the day, that ultimately is what, what's driving anything. I mean, these are companies. So, uh, you know... I'm not going to ask you to, to, to you know, legislate all of this and to, you know, to wave your magic wand. But like, how do we, now that the internet is comprised completely of platforms, you know, everybody gets their content through platforms right now. Is there a way to decouple those things?
0: I don't think by self policing, that they will be decoupled. I think that You know, to your point, because I've been I've been reading, you know, you and TechCrunch for a very long time. And we are, as you know, we meaning the proverbial entertainment industry folk of which I am in all three of the unions that we're currently dealing with. The contract negotiations are in a a labor crisis, like a lot of people in this country are in a labor crisis. And so we have reached an inflection point where the rise of capitalistically created tech platforms that are a lot monopolies. Um, have overtaken many former business models um, and uh, either crush them or not replace them with equitable uh, models and plans for their workers. So my industry is being disrupted, and many industries are being disrupted by this, whether it's by streaming or by AI or by any number of, of tech-related um uh, issues, even, I mean, Uber is a really obvious example, and I sort of, I relate to what's going on in, in my industry right now is the Uberfication.
1: The, the gig economy. Exactly,
0: where now if you're writing, you may, be, you may be writing on a giant HBO show and still living in your car and on welfare without health insurance, and that is where a lot of these companies uh, are driving towards, because it's much more profit for them, and it's much less for their workers, and they, and they decouple um, the worker from the company on in very specific ways. So, um, I think that, that in the, in the case of YouTube, you know, they've done a good job of monetizing their, their influencers, but they have very tight controls of, sort of who gets money and where the money goes. And so I don't think that they are in a position where they're able to police themselves. They've made claims that they're working harder on content moderation where they've done very little there, some, but very little. They've made claims that they, um, they don't allow ad money to be attached to certain types of content, which is you know to be blunt, patently untrue. So the the idea um, which you know came up even in the White House uh, a week or two ago, when the seven big tech companies went to see Biden and, and Vice President Harris and said, "Hey, you guys, uh, we're all in. We're gonna you know you guys go legislate AI." just let us police ourselves. We don't need your help. We're all good. And the government was like, go with God. You're all good. Have a great day. Um, And then they made this like super jubilant announcement that said, hey, guess what? The tech companies are going to police themselves. None of it's legally binding, but it's all awesome. That's not good, right? That's a, that's a terrible thing. And and they will not, they're not incentivized to police themselves because they have a profit and they have shareholders and they have, uh, they're publicly traded. Um, So I think that long-term there has to be, Uh, sort of activist and legislative action uh, from the outside, uh, even legal um, until they um, either, you know, make changes or what I think needs to happen is eventually you end up with antitrust and anti-monopoly situations like you have with every other industrial revolution (laughs) so far in human history.
1: You're talking about breaking up some of these companies.
0: I am. Yes. Yeah. 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 I am talking about breaking up the, the monopolies that I don't see, regulate self-regulating
1: i was listening to an an interview that you did recently around this and you alluded to some of the current attempts at legislation and regulation around big tech or i guess like innovation as we would call it broadly as being i think misguided and i'm curious what you meant by that
0: i'm very concerned there here's my take on this you have you know, here and in the EU, you have these giant tech companies with enormous lobbying power and enormous influence on the governments themselves that need to regulate. Them, which is why there has often not been very meaningful regulation and legislation aimed back at
1: those companies. Which, to be fair, is not a tech thing. Like that's how politics works.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, this is I me mean, sure. And then you add Citizens United to that here, and like you know, it's amazing anything gets done. So yes, this is this is the, the greasy wheels of of the Beltway. That being said, when you have a company like Google that, like, whose profit is larger than most countries' GDP combined, that's a lot of greasy wheels um, and a lot of a lot of lobbying power. So there's not a whole heck of a lot being done there. I think also not to be uh, disrespectful to some Congress people uh, whom I do respect, they don't really understand these technologies very well. They don't understand AI at all, in my opinion. In a, meaning, in a meaningful way. They don't really understand Section 230 uh, in a meaningful way. They don't really understand the, the, uh, the way the Internet functions the degree of how easy it is to pull on one thread of the sweater and end up harming the person on the other end that you were trying to protect. So that's what I mean. My fear around the legislation, which I think, you know, the U.S. is looking to copy the EU in many ways, both their DSA um which i know your audience is going to know what that is and some of the ai regulation that's coming down the pike from the eu worries me tremendously um i think it's going to harm a lot of the people they're seeking to help i think it's, they're looking to break encryption which would be a terrible thing to do they're looking to de-anonymize people who very much need to remain anonymous um they're you know if you look at cosa here which is a, in my opinion a disaster that they just will it's like it's like Michael Myers, it just will not die. Like you kill it and it just comes back like a year later. And it's an egregious piece of legislation uh that would do an enormous amount of harm. So I don't think there shouldn't be any attempt to legislate. I just think that right now you have a zealous populace that is eager for posturing. Right? They're eager, they're so they're placated by the government saying. We created an AI regulation bill, and everyone goes woohoo. And then you read it, and you think, "Oh my god, <laughs> like please don't, please don't do any of those things." Um, so I think they're sort of taking a, a blunt hammer to this stuff and just trying to bash it all into pieces, um, as opposed to a scalpel. And my fear is that, especially in, in a climate where you have a rise of far right autocracies. Where LGBTQ is going to be in jeopardy and and you know in in danger of of you know less privacy and more um, censorship and more attacks and other minorities and other uh, marginalized groups and then that just sort of fans out now until it's everybody
1: watching it. I was amazed that you got Susan Wojcicki from the standpoint that like I I, I assume that she's familiar with the other work that, that that you did and I assume that like going into a film she understands that this isn't going to be a puff piece. Were you surprised that she sat down to talk to you?
0: I wasn't, and maybe I'm being naive, but um, I knew that she wouldn't feel the need to say anything that would be dangerous to her, which she didn't. I knew, I know, I knew that she's very bright. I knew that she has um, spoken on these issues in other areas quite a bit. Uh, I know that Google, to be fair to them, uh, which includes YouTube, uh, has often been willing to, to come to the table and try to address issues, even th- very thorny ones that people have with them. Um, my problem, frankly, hasn't been so much Google's willingness or unwillingness to talk about the issues. My problem has been Google's willingness to take action, like real, real lasting action on those issues. Like, like Brianna Wu says in the film – you know after Christchurch and and some other sort of cataclysms that were occurring, uh, you know Google did put task forces together and attempt to to pick these I don't think that they're just a big black box, right I think there's a lot of very conscientious people there of whom Susan is one and so i wasn't um, I wasn't actually that surprised and nor for that reason did I think it was much of a coup. I thought it was important I thought that in a film about Google and YouTube to have someone who's been with that company both companies from the very beginning you know just in a, in a just to see the, their face and to look at their their facial expression and their eyes just really what a doc is good for i thought that was very important same with Steve Chen um but i didn't think it was a coup and i did i wasn't going to sort of wag my finger in her face and try to you know castigate her for things i thought they were doing wrong because she she would never give me answers that i that would be satisfying and it would, it would just be kind of rude in my opinion so
1: I obviously interview a lot of people who are media trained and, and there's a certain tacit understanding. Well, one that like that you do in fact have to ask them hard questions, but, but that they, that they're going to answer it like however they see fit. And that ultimately it's probably not going to be a very satisfying answer for me. I heard you previously discussing that interview with her and and talking about her eyes specific. Obviously that was something that, that you got, In, in person, you know, speaking with her, is that something that you think translates well into the documentary medium?
0: Yes, I do. In fact, I wasn't there because of COVID. All for th- this was the one movie where every single interview I conducted, I conducted remotely, like, like you and I are doing right now. I had a laptop. In that case, it was a pretty high end interview. So I had a pretty sophisticated setup, but it was still monitor to monitor, right? Like on there, like a, like a floating head next to the camera. I am asking the question. She is looking at me, but I was not there. I can tell you the reason I make documentaries is because you're putting a, a human face, an emotional contextualization of an issue in front of an audience. Uh, so it may not be, especially with my films, I'm not particularly interested in telling you things that you may or may not know already. That's not important to me. I'm not writing a magazine article. What's important to me is to have emotional an emotional relationship with this issue or these issues or these people involved in these issues. And I will tell you that all the interviews because I've been watching the movie in movie theaters because we've been showing the film theatrically for the last, really for the last year, but, but very much for the last month and a half. Um, there's a very emotional, visceral reaction between the audience and this film. They laugh at places. They laugh at places where people are being serious, but clearly lying. They gasp. They have an emotional response, and that includes the response to Susan's interview and other interviews of, of that nature. So uh, it, it is it, to me, it has been effective. In terms of the audience response,
1: I was thinking about this recently with regards to the, the the writing that I do that like such a big part of what I do is is knowing who your audience is and who your audience is going to be and and that's certainly at play here too like there's an expectation that somebody who sits down and takes the time to watch a documentary like this about YouTube will have a certain amount of understanding about the subject matter and that they will be, you know, canny when it comes to observing people in it.
0: Yeah, there's that and the fact that um, that human beings are, you know, people have a a very innate reaction to human behavior, even if they don't know much about the subject matter. So it's really – it really spans because, uh, I mean, a lot of times I'm showing the film in festivals or in movie theaters where people really don't know much about the issues um, or where they do, uh, but they'll be surprised by an emotional connection to someone in the film that they may not have liked on paper or where they saw them on the news or whatever. So it's – I mean, there's there's differing views of that in terms of what you're saying and for sure – Um, if you're showing it to a tech savvy audience or an audience that's, that's familiar with the issues, but I wouldn't, you know, I know you're not saying this, but it wouldn't say it's, it's the same as kind of preaching to the choir or preaching to the converted, because I don't think that there's a choir here. I don't don't think there's anyone is really converted here either. I don't think that these issues, while they may be getting talked about a lot, have any sense of resolution or, um, I don't think there's a real tribe. That's sort of the, I mean, there's a kind of all social media is bad tribe, which I'm not in, and I don't think the film is saying that. In um, fact, to a degree, I think it's saying the exact opposite of that. But in, but other than that, other than the sort of like, oh, all tech is bad, it should all go back in the in the toothpaste tube, um, I really think that no matter who is seeing this, there's a, there's, this is why we made it, there's an ability for them to have a kind of a new reaction or a new emotional reaction to, to the story.
1: At the top of the conversation, you know, when you're Speaking about the Usenet days, you alluded to some of the, I guess, kind of uh, radical politics groups that, that you were in and around. I'm, I'm curious how, if at all, the Internet formed your own politics. It's a very good question. I don't think anyone's ever
0: <laughs> asked me that before. Um, I mean, my poli- you know, I grew up in a, in, a pretty, uh, in a highly political family that included journalists and activists. So politics was a big part of our daily diet. I don't think it changed it, my politics, and that I've always been kind of on the same side of, of the fence. But uh, I will tell you that it opened my eyes to people who did not share my views in a more sympathetic way or empathetic way, unless they were terrorists or, or you know, hate-filled. But, you know, for example, when I did the Silk Road documentary, you know, and I was at Ross Ulbricht, who was the Dread Pirate Roberts, I was at his federal trial, and my ability to, to be in the social in the in the actual community of the Silk Road, which I was, I was in online on that community before it went down, uh, and my ability to sort of traffic with Ross and, and that that world, and, and they sh- you know, I, I have human empathy for Ross and what he went through. My politics in, in many ways could not be more different than his. They're almost exactly the opposite of his, in fact, or what they were when he was, you know, mayor twenty six when he got arrested, to be fair to Ross. He was a kid. But having been in the, in the thick of the BBS era, making relationships with people who, who were very bright and, and a lot to say that was worth listening to, but had very different politics from me, um, was extremely eye opening. And it gave me a much more, uh, uh, open-minded view of what would become very popular ideas, including w- the growth of crypto, um, and, uh, you know, uh, cryptocurrency and the, that grew out of the cyberpunk movement. Not, I'm not talking about the NFT. I'm not talking about the baloney, you know, let's make a billion dollars and get a Lambo side, but the political side of crypto um, and the kind of radical political side of, of crypto. Um, and a lot of those players, it allowed me to see them with much more nuance than I, than I, it would have if I hadn't been around those people 20 years earlier which i had because a lot of those same people were around in the bbs era in fact some of the exact same
1: people were around at that time speaking personally something that surprised me in my own life is you know the old the old quote like it's sometimes it's attributed george will sometimes like william buckley about you know if you're not a liberal when you're young you don't have a heart and if you're not a conservative when you're old you do know yeah yeah i'm surprised in my own life that i've drifted further left as I've gotten older. I think a lot of it is, you know, being a millennial, being, you know, getting out of college when I did this this economy, and then watching all of the things that have um, transpired, really, especially over the last, you know, three to five years. Yeah. Have your own politics, do Do they continue to shift?
0: Um, They do, uh, to a degree. But they tend... In a way, I would tell you that to your point, uh, after 2016, I became much more firmly. I felt it was important to be more firmly entrenched in what I believed my political views were, and to not be loose, not wear them like a loose garment, but like a firm coat. Because the world had gotten, so, and I had, so, I lost so many friends during 2016 who either, you know, people who are college professors who like fell for PizzaGate. Um, felt for the most obvious and obnoxious conspiracy theories that eventually led to full blown terrorism, right and extremism. Uh, so things that were the kind of radical di- late night discourse you could have with a very group of people in 2015. In 20, by 2016, I wasn't doing that anymore. I was like, you know what? I can't. This is, and if I'm doing it, I'm being very clear and firm about my views, and I'm not leaving things open to get pushed and pulled in varying directions because you could tell after 2016 where the country was going. And then of course it just got worse. And then with Trump, it got, you know, went overboard. And now moving into 2024, what I like to say is like, we're not in the rabbit hole era anymore because that's kind of a quaint term for when an algorithm would, you know, show you stuff you didn't want to see until you became. Now, disinfo and misinfo is the norm, right? Now it's pervasive. You don't need algorithms for it. It's literally everywhere. So you have influencers who are backed by dark money funders who are just pumping this information out publicly to millions of followers. You don't need a rabbit hole for that. It's just, it's just, it's the kind of the town square is, is, has been blackpilled. So, um, I think we're in a much more dangerous time. So to, to your point, uh, I don't know if it's changed my politics as much as it's made me take uh, my position much more seriously and to be clear as hell, especially within my social circles, I don't consider myself a public pundit, nor do I want to be one, but, uh, but certainly anywhere that I'm coming into contact with folks we are talking about these issues to make it very, very clear where I land.